Hello world and welcome to the Alba Ebro podcast mini-series, a program that brings a global and intersectional approach to hot topics in equity, diversity, and inclusion in neuroscience. The mini-series delves deeper into the knowledge and expertise shared at Alba Ebro events at three major conferences in 2023 to make these valuable insights accessible to all. The events and this podcast are supported by the International Brain Research Organization, and I'm your host for this special mini-series, Dr. Asma Bashir, the founder of Her Royal Science. For our second episode, we're coming to you from the 11th Ebro World Congress of Neuroscience, held in Granada, where ALBA and the Ebro Early Career Committee hosted a special event about how scientists from under-resourced communities and countries can leverage global collaboration to support affordable capacity development in neuroscience. For the first part of this conversation, I'll be speaking with three scientists about the initiatives that aim to support neuroscience research in their respective regions. The researchers are Dr. Mahmoud Bukhar Maina from the University of Sussex in the UK and the Biomedical Science Research and Training Center, or BioRTC, in Nigeria, Dr. Joe Haveman from Access to Perspectives in Germany, and Dr. Francisco Parada from Universidad Diego Portales in Chile. I'd like us to start by talking about the key projects that you're working on in the hopes of increasing capacity development within international neuroscience. So basically, um, African neuroscience have about five domains that makes it unique on a global stage. Mm. It has the potential to catalyze breakthroughs if properly invested in those regions. One of these regions is like the human genetic diversity in the African continent, which is so important not just for understanding brain health and disease, but for overall comprehension of human health. But then the question is, what has stopped African neuroscientists from fully exploiting these opportunities? So we have published a number of papers over the last two years showing that the lack of infrastructure is one of the major challenges affecting the neuroscience community in Africa. Mm. So with BioRTC, we established it in Yorba State University in order to have a hub or a center that is locally driven, connected to local community, policymakers, institution, but also having a global reach that can allow African scientists to be able to address some of those big questions within the African continent. That is wonderful. I look forward to diving a little bit more into BioRTC. Thank you so much, Dr. Maina. Let's go to Dr. Havman next. Let's hear more about what you shared at the Alba Ibro event. So I'm a trainer and consultant in open science communication, and I've specialized in global research equity and co-founder of Africa Archive, which is an African publishing platform. Yeah. Um, but on the, the conference in our session, I basically took a meta approach first, where I mentioned Declaration of Human Rights with Article 27, which um, says that every person on the planet has a right to engage in research. Um, so basically um, setting the stage for why we talk about equity and diversity in a research context. And I personally don't have a background in neuroscience, but it very much applies to any research topic generally. And then with Africa Archive, we promote African scholars in particular by providing a platform for them to disseminate their research free of charge and with no hurdles and strings attached. And as such, that then enables also visibility and opportunity for collaboration and networking within the continent, across language barriers, and also globally. 
I remember hearing about Africa Archive on Twitter and realizing that it's going to fill a niche very, very soon. And I imagine you're already getting a lot of posts and a lot of submissions to the archive. And I, I can't wait to hear more yet again. Thank you, Dr. Havman. Let's go to Francisco Parada. Dr. Parada, can you tell us a little bit more about the initiative that you shared? Certainly. So psychological and brain sciences in Latin America face a very significant challenge in terms of scientific funding, research, and evidence-based innovation. Mm -hmm. So in order to address this, what we did was to, found, to, to establish the Center for Human Neuroscience and Neuropsychology in the year 2017 at Universidad Diego Portales in Santiago, Chile. Uh, this is a multi-PI research center that focuses on the neuroscience of cognition and also serves as a day clinic for brain lesion survivors. Mm. Uh, the idea of this is that our mission is to advance the transdisciplinary mobile brain-body imaging approach and the 4E cognition research programs through basic science, theoretical advancements, and bidirectional innovations uh, to benefit the community. All right. I would love to actually spend a little bit more time speaking with you before we go back to Dr. Maina and Dr. Havman, if that's okay, Dr. Parada. Mm -hmm. um, I'm wondering if we could discuss the history of Chile and why a research center like this is important. What were the sequence of events that led to the creation of a space like this? Certainly. Mm -hmm. So in the 50s and the 60s, Chile reached an incredible potential and growth so basically, we established a lot of like technology, like uh, electricity for the, most of the country. So all of the stuff that uh, Mahmoud was telling us about the lack of infrastructure, we kind of solved it in the 50s and the 60s in Chile. Mm -hmm. uh, in 1973, there was a coup d'etat uh, and uh, basically they uh, destroyed democracy. It was a link between... Um, the CIA, private sector in Chile, and the military in Chile. So these three agents, basically, or actors, generated this very complicated situation in terms of psychological distress for people, mm. uh, economical distress for the market. Here, Pinochet and his collaborators, they stayed 17 years uh, torturing, disappearing, and killing people and of course, stealing resources. Mm. After that, pretty much we had no funding and everything is very stalled up until today. Psychologists had to hide during the uh, dictatorship because psychology was one of the uh, like forbidden uh, sciences. Therefore, putting psychology and brain sciences into a complete state of sleeping so basically, we started doing psychological and brain sciences mid-90s with no funding. Mm. So, so late. So basically, that's in a super long story made as short as possible uh, to show you how this political, uh, economical, and um, this is all in... If you actually want to, want to go further, this is absolutely coming from World War II. Mm. 
it's very important that we have this kind of conversation because present day problems are oftentimes the consequence of historical perspectives, historical experiences. So I thank you so, so much for sharing that. And since you're speaking about a center that was started uh, a couple of years ago now, I guess six years ago now, by the way, congratulations. Thank you. Dr. Uh, Maina, can you share a little bit about the origin story of your center, BioRTC, the, the sequence of events that led to its creation and where you are now? Uh, right. I was born and raised in Nigeria and educated there. Um, after my bachelor's degree, or about the time when I was finishing my bachelor's degree, I picked interest in neuroscience. Mm -hmm. And uh, I didn't realize that the neuroscience ecosystem is basically not existing in Nigeria. And I think this is uh, the case in most other African countries. And obviously, this is all linked to the lack of funding and infrastructure because most of the institutions are basically focused more on teaching rather than research. So a collection of these reasons made me realize that if I want to become a neuroscientist, I have to leave Africa. So that's how I left Africa. And a lot of these issues that I mentioned are actually widespread across the whole of Africa, with exception of probably South Africa where we, only, we have the only uh, center for neuroscience over there. Mm -hmm. So now while in, you know, in, in the UK, I realized that you know, uh, it's either I do something about the situation back at home or I remain like most of us do outside Africa, you know, the brain drain phenomenon. Mm -hmm. So that's when I started all these ideas, you know, leading different initiatives, uh, you know, and then all these papers and everything in order to fully understand what is the best approach to establish something sustainable? That's when I realized that you really need a number of different things to be in place before you can get something to succeed. One has to be, you know, local institutional support, you know, the institution where you want a center to be. Mm -hmm. You know, you want also the support of the local community, uh, you know, and uh, perhaps the, you know, policy makers, because whatever you build has to be sustainable. And if you want it to be sustainable, then they need to be there. Most importantly, then you need the global collaboration. So we've recently, you know, um, submitted a paper uh, to be published you know, describing all the different steps that we've undertaken in order for a center like this to, to, to come into existence. But basically started in 2017 and in 2021, finally we had this center. That is beautiful. And congrats to you as well for getting this off the ground. We'll be sure to share the links to the papers that you were referring to. Let's now switch over to Dr. Havman. I would love to hear more about not only the consultancy and the consulting firm that you run, but also about Africa Archive and what you feel the role is for open science in the research world at large. So take it away. Access to Perspectives basically provides researchers with information, trainings, and workshops on um, how to organize their research workflow as open as feasible um, in, the, in the gist of open science principles. Yeah. And now, since two years now, we have a good reference project, um, reference with the UNESCO Open Science Recommendations, which had um, consultations all over the world with research stakeholders from all disciplines and compartments. And um, so basically, at the end of the day, with why we do research is to serve society one way or the other. So the question now is, how can we make the research journey as efficient and 
rewarding to society and the planet as possible. And Africa Archive is one of our pillar projects or initiatives and okay. emerged pretty much five years ago now, basically providing the publishing, a lower threshold or no threshold publishing platform that then enables the, like I said in the beginning, the um, visibility um, for African research and the collaboration cross-continental as well as globally. And um, we also look towards uh, multilingualism. Or we, we've launched with an invitation of submissions in any African language. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. And we thought, okay, when it comes or when they come, we'll deal with it because we were already embedded in good networks. Yeah. So that's what we do, basically. We haven't gotten many African language submissions, but we've engaged ourselves in translation initiatives where we translate um, African first authors research articles in English in, with, with partner organizations. Another initiative that was discussed during the Alba Ibro event in Granada was the Women for Africa Foundation, a Spanish nonprofit that was created in 2012. The main objective of the foundation is to contribute to Africa's development through the support of its women, who are the driving force behind its progress. To learn more, visit mujeresporafrica.es. I'm wondering if all of you could take a moment to think about each other's initiatives and the conversations that you had at the Ibro event and what you've heard here today. And think about if there's anything that you've heard that will influence the work that you're doing now. Yeah, so for me, it's really important, the idea of open source and open science mm -hmm. and how this bidirectional uh, link with the community in order to generate uh, better effects. Uh, establishing capacities locally is also something that I completely uh, learned uh, from from this experience. And especially in the clinic, the day clinic we have for uh, neuropsychological rehabilitation of brain lesion survivors is particularly important to establish the capacity and generate a bidirectional link with them. And having this uh, information about what it means to survive a brain lesion open to the public. So I think that the the openness and establishing uh, capacities, local capacities, are two things that I'm definitely taking with me and implementing in the hopefully near future. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing that. Dr. Maina, how about we go to you next? Is there anything that you've heard today or previously on the 11th about things that you want to implement in your own programs or in the the center that you started in Nigeria? Yeah, so because the RTC is this hub where you have researchers both within Yobe State University, but also people from outside the university who come to do their research because we have an open access policy. And the general idea of having this open access policy is because we want people that do not have access to some of these cutting edge equipment to be able to use this equipment in our center to address their scientific questions. So, and uh, so at the end of the day for you, we'll be having a lot of people coming into this place to do their science, but then what happens after they get their results? How do they publish it? How do they, you know, make it accessible to other people? So this is something that we've discussed 
uh, with uh, with Joe about how we can get people who come and generate their data, learn about this uh, preprint database to upload their articles, to make it more visible to the scientific community before even it, it gets uh, published. So I know that Africa Archive also is very keen on that. And this is something that we've been discussing, how we can continue working together in that direction, which aligns very well with this openness that Francisco was mentioning earlier. Mm -hmm. All right, Dr. Havman, what do you think you want to implement in the work that you do with Africa Archive or even the consultancy that you do based off of what you've learned from your colleagues here? Yeah, what struck me um, by Francisco's presentation is the political dimension that research usually takes. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, this is a recurring or an ongoing um, theme in the work that I do around global research equity. And we see that um, painfully happening now in front of our eyes with Ukraine and Russia and how that affects research in both countries and the surrounding countries. As a German, I can also testify to how politics influences research. Mm -hmm. I don't know if we'll ever solve this <laughs> to a satisfactory level, but <laughs> I think it's something that we need to keep in mind what we're trying to achieve and then work for the possible by aiming for the impossible. Completely agree. I think it is very, very important of the most importance, in fact, to have conversations around politics and science in unison, because as much as we like to think that science exists in a silo, it really doesn't. It's influenced by every moving part of society that happens around us. So I'm so grateful that we're all having this conversation right now. All right. So let's talk about leveraging the global north to help the global south accomplish all of the the goals and the the points that we all want to reach in the next couple of years slash decades what do you wish your colleagues in the global north would do to support each of your initiatives um yeah i think for me uh what we have done in BRTC, you know has come thanks to the support that we received from the global north scientists especially through trend in africa because BRTC is a center that was established from the laboratory donations that we received from a lot of uh, institutions across Europe, as well as in the United States. Mm. We got the infrastructure locally, but the equipment came from there. So this is something that we continue to value and cherish. So for, the, for our collaborators or listeners from the Global North, I, I would say that if you have your equipment that is functioning or you have surplus, you know, you should consider donating it to us. Um, consumables as well as those companies having like Promega, you know, they have donated a lot of things to us, Talab, you know, we, we really kind of benefit from these donations because the African economy is still weak. When you want to buy something that costs around 500 pounds, if you convert it to local currency, it's a lot of money. So this is something that the local uh, government might see as being too expensive. But because they provide other support, like the infrastructure, staffing, and other things, so this then this other support that we could get from the Global North can then allow us to reach that level when the local support can come in. Lovely. Thank you so much for sharing that. Dr. Parada, let's go to you next. Uh, is there an idea or a hope for support from individuals and colleagues in the Global North that you could see fitting into the institution that you've built thus far? Uh, absolutely. I think that the best way to go is establishing bridges 
collaborating bridges. Mm. We need uh, scientists to come uh, to our uh, centers. Uh, there's uh, big gaps on on abilities, programming abilities, math, etc. So these exchange programs would be really, really important for us to help establish these um, local experts, uh, as well as generating transcultural or intercultural cultural, uh, experiments and grants. That is something that, of course, Africa and Asia Pacific uh, can also benefit from. So I would say that is mostly uh, extending bridges of true bidirectional collaboration. Uh, there's no need for this uh, imperialist uh, way of, of linking each other. We can definitely provide new perspectives and we can definitely as well uh, get help with uh, establishing specific abilities. Mm-hmm. I want to kind of echo that sentiment in saying that when you're collaborating with members of the Global South who are doing amazing neuroscience research, you're not pulling them to your level, you're giving them equal playing field, right? Mm-hmm. So I think there's this fallacy that when you're in a research facility in the Global North, there's a sense of you know pride and elevation, which I think is again, a fallacy. So I think we want to make sure that the listeners here today understand that you're creating equal ties. Mm -hmm. You're not saying that one is below or beneath the other. You're saying you are a a scientist with a mind and ideas that should contribute to whatever we have going on elsewhere in the world. And it's just about connecting and creating those bridges. I think bridges is a perfect word for it. Um, Dr. Havman, let's go to you. Um, What do you wish that collaborators in the Global North with the initiatives that you're running on the African continent and elsewhere, what do you wish that they would do to amp up and support those initiatives? Yeah, basically adding to what was just said by Mahmoud and Francisco, um, and and what you also emphasized that it's about collaboration and and equity is not about charity, it's about a playing field where everybody benefits and contributes equally mm-hmm. um, with the means they have at hand, but also the, the local and regional resources and knowledge and expertise that's unique. And, and the experiences and innovative thoughts and ideas that every human being brings to the table, irrespective of the, the surroundings. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's many things that every researcher can do on, in terms of widening the horizon of where to search for relevant literature beyond English in, in the respective regional databases and repositories, um, citing colleagues from various parts of the world. Um, you can also use... Uh, machine translation now for lack of um, language skills, just to tap into, and, and many of the, the more widely used um, literature search tools now also have uh, or provide output in um, from from researchers also in, in other languages or, yeah, so don't, don't only cite the, the usual suspects of your colleagues in your in your field. That's a wonderful note to end this conversation on. I want to thank each and every one of you, Dr. Mahmoud Bukarmaina, Dr. Joe Haverman, and Dr. Francisco Parada. I am so grateful to have had this conversation with each of you. And I think the work that you're doing is not only amazing and inspiring, ultimately it's very necessary and it takes a lot of effort to do this work. And so I want to just take a moment to express my gratitude for taking the time, the blood, sweat, and tears that it takes to do this kind of work. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. 
The ALBA Declaration on Equity and Inclusion is a resource for concrete, positive, evidence-based actions that individuals and organizations at any level can take to promote equity and inclusivity. Read it and sign it today on the ALBA website. For the second part of my conversation, I'm joined today by Dr. Pixie Chia from the University of Putri in Malaysia, who was also a panelist for the ALBA Ibro event that took place in Granada. And also, I'm joined by Drs. Isabel Delvino and Miguel Maravalla, who co-chaired the event. Collectively, they will provide concluding remarks to our conversation. Uh, let's start with Dr. Chia. Could you briefly describe the work that you do in the Asia-Pacific region to support affordable capacity development in neuroscience? Yeah, absolutely. I'm really glad to share how we actually support the affordable capacity development in neuroscience. And our key priority is to advocate for the importance on how to increase DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion in neuroscience, and most importantly, to provide resources for Asia-Pacific researchers. Our committee empowers young investigators from especially those from middle and low income countries by providing substantial funding opportunities to help them in their career development. This is because we strongly believe that the young neuroscientists are invaluable assets to our research community and they will bring fresh perspectives and innovative ideas. For that, we provided them with um, both the short term and long-term programs to foster overseas knowledge transfer and exchange opportunities. The short-term programs, including travel grants, three months uh, short-stay program. The long-term programs include, for example, one-year exchange fellowship or the Rising Star Award. And we hope that by embracing their potential and riches in the field, it will help them to propel the advancement in neuroscience and ultimately benefiting a broader community in Asia-Pacific region. That's wonderful and really exciting work. Uh, let's switch over to our co-chairs from the event, Drs. Delpino and Maravai. Can you talk a little bit more about what you think the impact of this work that Dr. Chia just talked about and all of the other panelists spoke about as well is from a global perspective? Let's start with Dr. Delpino. Regarding the neuroscience uh, research training that the, that the Biomedical Science and Research Center is providing uh, and is guided by Mahmoud Maira. Uh, I think this is advancing and, and providing researchers in Africa with uh, state-of-the-art uh, technologies and infrastructure. Mm. So this could improve and is improving already uh, the research of African researchers. I think it's very, very clear. How about you, Dr. Maravai? What are your thoughts on the impact of this work from a global perspective? So I first got interested in the work that we discussed at the session because it felt to me that it was a very inspiring sort of counter-narrative to the increasing dependence of cutting-edge neuroscience research on very expensive technology. Mm. It seemed to us that this approach that combines cheap and, and easily adaptable consumer technologies like microelectronics, 3D printing, uh, and so on, with a much more devolved way to make decisions locally means that it's possible to train people up much more quickly at a local level for institutions in the global south to 
really sort of embrace modern research and healthcare advances dependent on neuroscience in a way that, that allows them to partner much more effectively with um, the institutions that already have those resources in, in, in the West. So, you know, we the what we had at the session was a showcase of different approaches to that, uh, which can work in different ways. Well, okay, so what I'm getting a sense of is um, empowerment is the theme. Mm -hmm. Equipping people not only with the technology to do this work in an accessible way, but also to empower the people to do all this amazing work in a way that doesn't you know, drag down monetary resources or you're not limited by time because you have to wait for this grant to be funded in order for you to get this particular type of microscope. You can build a cheaper microscope and still get the data that you need to do this kind of work. Is, is that kind of what you're saying? That's right. And you're not limited by the perhaps the commercial interests of uh, companies that are perhaps based far away and that have a harder time uh, shipping their products over to you. Uh, and those products may be, as you say, unaffordable in the first place anyway. Mm. And also it's empowerment, not just to do science, but to train others to do science and to not just to do science, but to sort of adopt the um, scientific point of view in or, or, or more widely broadcast the benefits of science in education and also in healthcare. Mm -hmm. What do you all feel were the major takeaways from the discussion? And if so, is there anything that you've learned in these conversations that will change the way that you carry out research in your own either groups or in the centers in which you work? Let's start with Dr. Chia. Well, thank you. Um, for myself, I, I'm really inspired by how the scientists from the resource-limited countries demonstrated a remarkable ingenuity in optimizing the cost-effective strategies to advance science. Mm. Their ability to maximize the outcome on the limited resources underscore the importance of creativity in scientific research, irrespective of financial constraints. Mm. And of course, I also find that it is really crucial to promote the globally inclusive science communication and research management yeah. because uh, this can be achieved through the open science practices because the open science enhances collaboration, knowledge sharing and access to resources that it can foster a more equitable and efficient scientific ecosystem. Mm -hmm. This transformation enables a very diverse voices and also able to accelerate global progress in neuroscience research and also innovation. All right. Thank you so much for that. <laughs> thank you. Um, Dr. Maravai, let's go to you next. Is there anything that you've taken away from the session that took place that will change the way that you do your own science? Uh, yes, for sure. Um, so I think maybe two or three things stand out for individuals. So first of all, for uh, those of us who are engaged in doing research and uh, maybe producing outputs, uh, I think one thing to think about is how we can share not just outputs openly, but also some of the tools that we develop or, uh, or have to kind of tune up in order to achieve those outputs. So there's a whole bunch of resources now for sharing hardware and uh, lab designs mm. in a way that kind of puts them out there much more effectively. And if they're out there, then that means that others can also contribute to improving the designs or uh, or perhaps coming up with new applications for them. So it's, it's a virtuous circle, really. So I guess lesson number one is share your hardware and software, not just your outputs. Mm. 
Um, and maybe lesson number two is a little bit different for people in richer countries and in the global south, and it's to do with really kind of seeking out the training programs that are popping up. Um, you know, organizations like Trend in Africa, for example, that do really effective training at the local level. Um, people can either participate as volunteers, um, and there's a lot of information out there on how to do that. But also, um, I would encourage those in the Global South listening to this podcast to seek out those, um, if you like, kind of devolved training organizations that uh, are running train the trainer activities and so on. I think those are the um, take home messages for individuals. And then for funders and societies, I think there's a couple of things that stood out. One is that really, it's probably a good idea to start thinking about how best to fund and support the rollout of methods sharing and tool sharing, um, not just open outputs. And the second one is, you know, what happens after training, right? What happens after someone from a poorer country goes to train in a richer country and then comes back and try and wants to spread what they've learned and to maybe roll out expertise and methods across their country. How can successful trainees at courses be helped to pass on their knowledge locally and build capacity where it's needed? I think that's a, you know, that's a broad question for maybe funders and societies to think about. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. Um, I think there's a, a multi-pronged approach to assisting and ameliorating research that is done in the Global South, and I appreciate you summarizing it so, so well. Uh, Dr. Delpino, let's go to you next. Final words of the day. What was the major takeaway you felt from the session that took place, and how do you feel you're going to uh, assimilate some of those lessons into your research now? Yeah, yeah, thank you. Um, so there are two, two dimensions of, uh, of lessons. As a, as a member of the Ibro Early Career uh, Committee, mm -hmm. Um, since our objective is to, to secure that everyone has access to neuroscience research, uh, what we learn as a committee, so as, as in, in scientific policy, is that we have to try to learn from those initiatives that are making a major impact on research training and biomedical research also. And uh, these uh, initiatives, I think the major factor that makes them different is, is the on-site on training, as Miguel said, mm. so the, and also the training in open technology. So it's not the same as training someone to build your, your own technology that you need for your lab, then just take them, taking them to another country to teach them about your uh, research uh, routine. So I think uh, that's a major lesson that I take as an Ibro career researcher. As a young uh, group leader, I have to say that this uh, uh, special event uh, uh, is brought us a lot of uh, new information about uh, how to uh, get to these open technologies that myself I'm applying to the lab. So I'm able to do, uh, for example, behavioral research in mice thanks to the open technologies that we can, we can build ourselves. Uh, this is one, just one of the examples. Mm -hmm. Very, very well put, very astute lessons. All right, I'll take this opportunity to say thank you to all of you, Dr. Pixicia, Dr. Isabel Del Pino, and Dr. Miguel Maravay for joining me today. And I'd also love to say thank you to our audience for listening to the second episode of the Alba Ebro podcast miniseries. I'm Dr. Asma Bashir, and it's been a pleasure to guide you through this conversation. If you haven't yet listened to our first episode, be sure to check it out. There, I speak with Dr. Sarah El-Farash, Dr. Royhan Folarin, and Dr. Lithe Gulu about neuroscience mentorship on the African continent. 
This podcast is organized with support of Ebro, a founding partner of the Alba Network. And the Alba Network aims to promote equity, diversity, and inclusion to counteract bias and fight discrimination in brain research. For more information on this podcast, visit www.alba.network. Thank you.